The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 11th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. I've been slowly making my way through a book that I didn't anticipate to be as poignant for me as it really is. And I'm not going to tell you the name of the book because I haven't finished it yet. And I've learned my lesson with that, (laughs) talking about books and TV shows and movies that I haven't finished. And then you go finish them and I realize I never mentioned it in the first place. So I feel like I know how this one's going to end, but I'm holding back. But it's been poignant because it's been written by a team of pastors. And they're about 18 to 20 years ahead of us in this pastoral journey. And they, they wrote this book almost 10 years ago. But in some sense, it is their own personal reflection on the work of God in the church that they have served and their own awakening to the realities of life in that church that they led and cultivated and what God was doing in some sense even to rescue them from themselves. And it hit me like a ton of bricks early on as I was reading it. And one of the pastors, he, he wrote this. He, he said, I'm convinced that we have trained Christians. And I, I want to say this real quick. I should have said it a second ago. When these guys are writing this book, and I'm just going to help you read Christian literature. When you read a pastor or a theologian in, in a Christian living and they talk about the church, They're almost always talking about the broader church, right? And that's pretty easy. These guys are talking about the church that God used them to establish and serve. This isn't the church, capital C, broad. They're talking about the local church that they serve, that they led, that they're still seeking to lead by God's grace. And they said they found themselves convinced that they, in their local church, have trained Christians to be demanding consumers and not disciples of Jesus. You never find that kind of honesty in church literature written by local church pastors. I promise you, you rarely ever find it. And it was haunting to read. And that kind of process, it it goes as deep as to what we do with our kids and with our students and, and how we're helping them to understand the gospel and the church. And As I read the book and and kept reading, and and I'll I'll tell you a little bit more here in a minute, you just have to stop and at least be honest with yourself and and acknowledge that in the time in which we live and the place in which God saw fit for all of eternity to place us where we are, that consumerism is really the air that we breathe where we are. It's just in the air. Consumption is literally at the heart of our nation's economic engine. We want things. We demand things. We demand them in a certain way. And then businesses go about trying to strategically develop those things that we say we want in a certain way and scratch and claw with each other to try to get us to get what it is we say we want and what we need in the way we want and need it. And theoretically, on paper, when they're able to do that, everyone walks away happy, right? That's the on the back of the napkin theory of capitalism. And everyone's supposed to win. It's economic Darwinism at its best, really. But it's the air that we breathe. And for that cycle and for that engine to actually run, you and I are told on a daily basis, 
now in ways that were never, never understood and never faced in generations before us because of technology. We are told on a daily basis, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that who we are and what we have is insufficient. And so we're just bombarded constantly with messages to upgrade, trade in, borrow, to buy, to have. And this economy of ours, it thrives, it it runs on a perpetual sense of discontentment. And here's the thing, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. That's the thing. We, we have to be honest about it to, to get where we're going to go and to understand what we're going to talk about. We just have to be honest about it. And the consequences, bless you, the long-term consequences of, of this reality, they're not new to you either, right? The long-term consequence of being told all day, every day to be dissatisfied with what you have and, and who you are and therefore to upgrade, trade in, borrow, to get something new is just the reality that as consumers, we've become very accustomed to having our needs met when we want them met and how we want them met. And so one writer said, we've become experts at dissatisfaction remediation. That's us. And to think that this has no influence, no impact on our souls To think that this has no influence and no impact on the church is to live willfully ignorant of that reality, period. This air that we breathe and the place where God has put us, it's shaping a nation of consumers, including spiritual consumers. Spiritual Goldilocks in a sense, right? We find ourselves in this church community, but all of a sudden, it's too big, it's too small, it's too loud, it's too quiet, it's too far away, it's too close to home, it's whatever. And this one's too big, and now this one's too loud, and now this one's too modern, now this one's too old, now this one's too formal, now this one's too casual, and oh, this one's just right for now until it's not because there are people there (laughs) and you're there. And I'm saying this just to be very clear. I mean, this is just reality, right? I'm not picking on anything. This is just reality. And when you think about it, how could it be otherwise? I mean, if that's the air that we breathe and the engine that... The economy, not just financially, but even socially and personally runs in this country and culture we find ourselves in. How could it have no impact on our understanding and engagement with God's people? For it to be different, we would really have to believe that the call to follow Jesus, the one who calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our own personal crosses, to lose our lives in order to actually find them. We would have to truly believe that he really is the way, the truth, and the life. And we'd have to truly believe that the people of God that he has placed us with, the community that is the church, is one of his chief instruments for continuing to 
shape us and form us into reflections of himself. Otherwise, it's just a place where we get to check off the box and not be bothered and stay the way things really are and determine whether or not our needs are being met or not. And I want you to understand that even as a pastor coming to this realization and recognizing that the power of these forces at work, it, it becomes very clear sometimes when you have those moments of clarity that these two engines are at odds. The modern 21st century Western engine of consumption as it impacts the life of God's people in the church is ultimately at violent odds with Jesus' call to self-denial. To service and sacrifice. And so as I was reading this book and constantly being surprised at the honesty with which these pastors were writing about their own journey and their own church, and they spent some time talking about the, the various qualities that they worked really hard to see reflected in the life of their people, the, that their church would be known for. You know, when I mean, you get into those mantras of, of values and all the different ways you can write them out and they wanted to be known by these things and the big exercises they would go through to get there and then the seasons that would come and people would ask them to come and talk about it and they would come to their church to find out how they did it and all this kind of stuff. They looked back on that and... They said, you know, we came to realize that there is no more spiritually devastating force today than the antichrist spirit of consumerism. Much of the New Testament simply will not make sense until one has learned to lay down the burdens of having your own way. The cultivation of consumer spirituality is the antithesis of a sacrificial deny yourself congregation. And we cultivated that very thing without ever even realizing it. And as I've been making my way through the book, it's, it's been a cautionary tale. As I've reflected on our own journey for the last almost 15 years now and how easy it is, not just in a, in a certain ministry like kids or students, but in the life of a Christian, in the life of a church, how easy it is to no longer major on the majors, but to begin majoring on the minors so that people, including ourselves, might be more satisfied. How easy it is in our own lives as followers of Jesus. And so it's why as we open back up God's word to this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, we see Paul again overflowing with gratitude to God for the evidences of his grace that are at work in the lives of this church. He, he's already done it. If you were with us, you remember the beginning of the letter, the entire first chapter is nearly one big overflow of gratitude to God for what he sees in the lives of this church. In particular, their, their works of faith and their labors of love and the steadfastness of their hope in Jesus. And, and now as we come towards the end of, of what we have is chapter two, gratitude is again spilling out of Paul. It's like he can't think about this church and the grace of God and not overflow in gratitude to God. But as we listen this morning, we're, we're not going to hear Paul thanking God that this church was doing a bang up job of making everybody happy. That they had found the secret sauce to satisfying everybody who was there. That dissatisfaction levels in the church were at an all time low and complaints were down 30% since Paul's last visit, right? No, we're going to hear Paul express gratitude to God. And we're going to hear Paul communicate this to this church. And 
The gratitude that Paul has is a gratitude that majors on the majors. What really matters. We're going to see two things that make a guy like the Apostle Paul grateful to God. Two things, two qualities that I hope you'll join us in praying will mark us as a people. Right? So if you've got your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 13. I'll read through a few verses, pray for us, and then we'll, we'll consider what Paul says together. And we also thank God constantly for this, Paul said, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, we need you this morning by your spirit to help us have eyes to see and, and ears to hear that which matters most, that which drives gratefulness and gratitude to you for your work in your people, that which is to mark your people in all times and in all places. Help us to see it, help us to hear it, help us to delight in it. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. First thing that Paul expresses his gratitude to God for here in this, I'm going to say it this way. He expresses gratitude that in this church there they are a people who are continuing to surrender to God's word with joy. With joy. And here's why I say it that way. Look at verse 13. Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this. And now he's going to tell you what it is, all right? So here it is. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Now let me explain why what he said right there matters in a particular way. He used two words right there that are very closely related. In some sense, you, you could have even, you know, used either one of them in this sentence. But he used two distinct words closely related because he's trying to communicate something very particular. That word received right there, it's a very formal word. It was used in, in this time and age inside and outside of, of the church for the, the formal communication of a truth, like from a teacher to a student. Some kind of formal tradition that is being handed down from one generation to the next. So there is a truth, an objective truth, that a teacher is handing down to a student, right? That is something that the student receives. It doesn't become what it is, <clears throat> excuse me, because the student decides to receive it. It is what it is because it is what it is, right? Paul says you received the word of God. It's not the word of God because you decided to make it the word of God. It's not the word of God because you decided that that's what it was. It is what it is and we spoke it to you, we proclaimed it to you and you received it. It doesn't become the word of God once you decide that that's what it is. Does it make sense? Then Paul says you accepted it. Not as the word of men but as what it really is, the word of God. Accepted is closely related to received. 
but accepted carries this idea and weight in the writing of welcoming it. Like you can pass on information from student to teacher, but it's then the embracing of that information for what it is, the welcoming of that information for what it is, the appropriating of that information to your life. So your life now being impacted and shaped by that information, that information conforming your life, how you think and how you live, surrendering to the truthfulness of that information, particularly because here we're talking about the word of God in all of its authority. They received the word of God for what it is and they took it in. They embraced it. They welcomed it. They surrendered to it. Most specifically here, the, the word of God about the Son of God. God's plan to rescue sinners from his wrath through the sacrifice of his Son by his mercy and for his glory alone, the gospel. As the New Testament would continue to be written letters, written letters compiled, preserved, that God had inspired, you'll find writers talking about the word of God and it extending to all of God's writing, the prophets, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But here Paul's talking specifically about the word of God's grace, about his son, the gospel. And Paul said, we delivered it to you. You received it, but you didn't just take it. You embraced it. You accepted it. You welcomed it. You surrendered to it. Your life began to be shaped by it. Even though it cost you. If you were with us, you may remember in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul was reminding them that they had received the word of the gospel with great affliction. Even though it cost you, you embraced it, surrendered to it, allowed it to shape you. It was seen by you and embraced by you as more precious than whatever safety you lost, whatever reputation you lost, whatever finance or job you lost. The word of God about God and his grace through his son to you was more precious to you than all of those things. And you received it and accepted it and welcomed it and surrendered to it at great cost with great joy. If you go back and read, that's what he said in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, as they received it in great affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. When I lived in Minneapolis, John Piper used to always talk about God's word being precious and pleasant. And it wasn't just from this text that he got that. It was from Psalm 19.10 where the psalmist says about God's words that they're more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. He would say gold is precious and honey is pleasant. And this church welcomed and embraced and surrendered to the word of God about the son of God as more precious than anything that they lost and more pleasant than anything they could ever gain. This was a people that was continuing to surrender their lives their hopes, their sense of not only position, but security and eternity, surrendering to the word of God with great joy. For this why here we, we have, and I pray that we will continue to value the ongoing preaching and teaching of God's word and the ongoing practice and rhythm of 
engaging with God in his word, not just on a weekly basis, but on a daily basis. You know, J.I. Packer said that when the church gathers on Sunday in preaching, the word of God delivers through the preacher a message from God to his people about God and godliness. That, that might be one of the best definitions of preaching that I've probably ever read. So what's going on right now? For, for those of you that are fairly new to the life of the church, fifth graders, for those of you that are joining us for the first time, and you're like, why is this person still talking? You're like my kids. You can go back to class, right? You're like, I'm going to go back to class, right? Why is he still talking? Well, Packer helped us understand it better than anybody else. He didn't say that the person up here like myself or whoever else might be up here is delivering to you a message about God. He said God's word is delivering directly to your soul, directly to your heart, a message about God and godliness, and he's doing it through a tool like me. Just a tool, just an instrument by which God himself, through his word, is delivering to your soul a message about himself and his grace and his mercy a living encounter with God himself. That's what's happening every single week. That's why throughout history, when the church has gathered, they've prioritized the continued reading and teaching and praying and singing of God's word. But it's not just through a tool like me. It's not just through the teaching and the, the preaching on a Sunday that this happens every single day. This encounter with God is yours to be had as you open up his word and his spirit works through his word into your heart to help you see and enjoy his son. To help you see who God is. See your continued need for him. See his ongoing steadfastness of faithfulness to you. This encounter with God through his word to your soul is yours to be had on a daily basis. Friends, pray with us. May we always major on the majors of seeing and enjoying Jesus in God's word and being a people who are increasingly surrendering our lives to this word with joy, receiving it for what it is, God's authoritative word, but taking it all the way in welcoming it, embracing it, surrendering to it because there is nothing, nothing imaginable that is comparable to God's word worked through his spirit in power. That is it. It is the most powerful thing you could ever engage in. This is what Paul actually says. It's this word that they've taken in and surrendered to which is at work in you believers. It's not a dead word. It's, it's not a collection of philosophical propositions. It's, it's a living and active word. God reveals himself to us. We know something of God's nature and character that apart from his grace and showing us, we could have never known or encountered on our own. It's living and active in us. It's this word that's at work in us by his spirit teaching us to obey, teaching us the joy of obedience comforting us in trials, sustaining us in suffering, giving us a living hope for the future. It's this living and active word that is showing us Jesus. 
And as Paul has already made much of in the letter, it's this living and active word in the lives of God's people, especially in this church in Thessalonica, that is changing them. It's transforming them. Remember, their lives are so different now as they didn't just receive the truthfulness of the word, but they took it all the way in and they surrendered to it so much so that as God has promised, it's changed them. And everywhere Paul goes, he hears about what God's done in the lives of this church. Paul goes somewhere else and people tell him about the church in Thessalonica. They've heard the stories of how their lives have changed, even at great cost. Though it cost them jobs, though it cost them reputation, though it cost them money, though it cost them family, though it cost them friends, though it cost some of them their lives. This word of God's grace was more precious to them than all of it. More pleasant to their heart than anything else they lost. And the power of this word at work in them has changed their life. It's at work transforming you. And this living and active word is at work in you who believe. It's at work in you who believe to help you put to death the misdeeds of the body, Paul would say in Romans 8. It's at work in you to help you put on a new attitude in mind, Paul would say in Ephesians 4. To put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, Paul would say to the church in Ephesus. It's at work in you to increasingly help you conform to the fullness of the image of Jesus. And the question we're, we're left with as we consider ourselves and we consider the church and we consider this living and active word is, is this transformation what you really want? It's kind of like that story of Jesus coming across the man who was lame, laying by the pool, and remember he asked him, do you want to be healed? Do you really want to be transformed in the image and likeness of Jesus? Do you really want this living and active word to be at work in you, making you less in Jesus more? Helping you to deny yourself? Is this what you want? As I continued to read that book and those pastors were so honest about their, their journeys, they said we realized that it had become sufficient for us that Jesus has forgiven our sins and secured our eternity, leaving our daily lives, though, relatively unaffected. We were still the self-absorbed spouses we'd always been. We continued to have a miser's heart with our resources. We continued to use anger to overwhelm our opponents. We were still trapped in lust. We still manipulated and controlled to get what we wanted. We still trusted our political party more than Jesus. We ignored the poor. We had personal policies that were categorically opposed to the teachings of Jesus, but we weren't bothered enough by these disconnects to put forth the spirit-born effort to cooperate with the Holy Spirit because in spite of what we would claim, we really didn't believe transformation in our lives was all that important. Do you want this living and active word alive and at work in you to continue to transform you into the image and likeness of Jesus? Do you really want a church community that majors on gospel transformation, that majors on the living and active word, that seeks to increasingly surrender our lives to the authority of that word with joy? Or do we really just want a community that allows us to check the box and be okay with our life as it is until something really blows up? 
You can grow that kind of church without ever having to become more like Jesus. I can promise you that. But what is it we really want? Paul is overflowing with gratitude to God for this church and he's letting them know about it. You heard us preach, you heard us teach the good news of God's grace and you embraced it. You surrendered to it. Keep going. That's what he's saying. I'm so grateful to God for what I see and you keep at it. Keep going. The pressure's not going to stop. The pressure's not going to change. It's not going to get easier. In fact, it's going to get harder. Keep going. Friends, are, are you still accepting the word of God for what it is? Are you still surrendering to it to direct your life, your desires, your thinking? Are you still believing that it will provide for you all that you truly need? Right? Maybe you would say yes, but not to the degree that I want. If you see even a mustard seed of inkling and desire in that, I want you to know that is God at work in you. For that, we're to be grateful. For that, we're to be grateful to God because it is his power at work in us that brings even this desire about. This was a people that caused Paul to be grateful to God because they were a people that were continuing to surrender to the word of God with great joy. But also, they, they were a people who were continuing to suffer with great hope. That's the second thing in verse 14. Paul says, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. We've said it over and over again. If you've been with us as we've been going through this book, I've said it many times this morning. For this church in Thessalonica to surrender to God's word, to follow the call, to submit their lives to Jesus, to become followers of Jesus, to turn from their idols and to the living and true God cost them a lot. It would cost the majority of them some great level of social standing. They would be rejected by family members. They would be rejected by friends. They would be rejected by coworkers. For some, they would lose jobs, which would be income and stability. For some, they would go on to lose their lives. The persecution would increase. It would become violent. It would become physical. For them to follow Jesus, to receive this word with great joy, to accept it, embrace it, take it in, for how their lives sifted and sorted and shaped by this word was going to cost them. And as you and I come to a letter like this and, and we read about what happened to this church and, and we get into the details maybe of what they experienced and suffered, we have to step back and go, well, we live in the 21st century West, right? And as we come across this reality that we see at work in this church, I, I think it's helpful for us to remember that this is probably a, a warning of preparation for us. A warning of preparation for us maybe enduring what many others have already gone through. Not just back then. Around the world today, brothers and sisters in Jesus suffer the loss of things that you and I hold dear and spend so much of our life trying to cling to it and hold fast to They've lost it because they've decided that Jesus was better. That the word of the gospel was more precious than all of those things. More pleasant to their soul. In Central Asia, we've had the privilege of sitting down with men and women who lost family members, lost friends, lost jobs, who live on the run constantly in a nation that seeks to take their life for their ministry and following Jesus. 
My wife and I sat down with, or got to sit and listen to a, a professor years ago who had just come back from teaching a young group of pastors in the country of Chad. And at the time, the country of Chad was the poorest country in the world. And Saudi Arabia had just spent tens of millions of dollars to build the second most opulent mosque in the middle of the capital city of Chad. And it was an effort to influence the entire region. It was a whole thing. And he had just come back from teaching this young group of pastors quietly in, in secrecy. And they had to do it that way because about, I think, I think he said it's like five or six years before, this young group of pastors their dads were all pastors. And in the villages in which they lived, a group of militia came through and they got all the families out of the villages and got all these pastors that they believed to be followers of Jesus out. And they had their sons dig holes in the ground. And they had each of the dads who were the pastors at the time stand in a hole and they gave them a chance to deny the gospel, to renounce their following of Jesus. And to a man, the professor said, they all rejected the opportunity, and they were all shot, and their sons then buried them right there. Those sons were the ones he was training to be pastors, and they knew exactly what was coming. They knew exactly what they were going to face. They knew exactly what the call to follow Jesus, not just as pastors, but as, but as apprentices, as, as Christians, was going to face. They knew what they were going to face with this. Friends, it happens today. It doesn't just happen then. And I'm not saying that it's ever going to come to that. I, I, I can't imagine a, a time and a situation, and maybe it's my own naivete, I can't imagine a situation where, at least in our country, that's going to be a reality. But I don't have to tell you that contemporary cultural pressure is no longer as accepting of a biblical view of things like sexuality or, or marriage or, or even life itself. And the temperature is rising for those who want to identify themselves with Jesus. Who want to identify themselves as followers of Jesus. And it's probably going to cost you at some point. There are some in here, I know it's already cost you. For some, you've lost jobs. For some, you've lost relationships with family. You've probably already felt it probably in an office or on a campus or maybe even on a playground with your kids talking with other neighbors and friends and people you meet. The world in which we live is just not so accepting of a biblical view of life as we think it used to be. But here's the thing. That's not new, right? Don't, shouldn't get so uptight about that. It's not new. But what it means is it's going to require a sustained gospel courage to live as a follower of Jesus in the day in which we live. To resist the overwhelming lure of consumerism and entitlement. The overwhelming angst of nationalism and racism. To live as a follower of Jesus in the day in which we live is it's going to require a gospel sustained courage. You know the you read the story of Paul and the team in Thessalonica in Acts 17 and you read the letters that he wrote in this one and the next one and you see that when Paul's kind of frustration arises, when his ire arises it's, it's never at what they lose he's never mad at those who oppose him or the church because of what it cost them, because they lost a job or lost a friend or their reputation dropped with everyone around them, what he always gets most frustrated by and vocalizes 
is that those that are opposing him and opposing the church are opposing the message of salvation. They're condemning those around them to eternal separation from God and condemnation. And Paul just can't deal with that anymore. In fact, that's what he says here in verse 16. They're hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And it's going to take a particular gospel courage and a particular gospel delight for you and I to live as followers of Jesus and seek to see those that we love and those that we engage with come to know the goodness of God and the grace of his son. And I'm not talking particularly about a courage that requires you know, bullhorns and pickets and rallies and there might be a time and a place where that's necessary. I'm not saying, but I'm not saying that directly. I'm talking about a courage, a gospel-born courage that looks like a willingness to be less, a willingness to be seen by others as less, that by the work of God's grace, Jesus might be seen as more to them through you. And that's gonna cost you. For that to be a reality, it's going to cost me. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost God's people. For us to deny ourselves that we might be less in order for Jesus to be seen through us as better. As truly better. This was a people for which Paul was so grateful to God for. Because as he heard about them and looked at them, they were continuing in the midst of great cost to surrender their lives to the truthfulness of God's word with joy and to endure whatever it might cost them with great hope. And that kind of courage is cultivated as you and I continue to see Jesus as truly better. And that happens as we have regular encounters with him, regular sightings of him in his word, his living and active word that's powerful and at work in those who believe. Right? We don't have to, to generate on our own or, or muster up on our own this kind of courage. We don't have to squeeze, clench our fists and, and white knuckle our life to have this kind of courage. We just need to be regularly encountering Jesus through his word. That God by his spirit would do the work in our hearts of making this word more precious than whatever it may cost us to follow his son, more pleasing in our hearts than whatever we might lose as a follower of Jesus. That we would be a people that were increasingly living in such a way that the world might look at and, and push back against where there's no way to deny it. We were becoming less that Jesus might be seen as more through us. For that to happen, friends, we have to keep majoring on the majors. We have to keep focused on what really matters. We have to be a people who want to be increasingly surrendering to his word with joy and suffering whatever comes with hope because we're a people who are increasingly convinced that Jesus is better. Better than whatever it might cost us, better than whatever the world might promise us, that he's simply better. 
more precious and more pleasant than anything else we could imagine. So let me ask you this as we get ready to transition. Do you, do you ever look around Redemption Hill and, and pause from time to time to thank God for the gospel things you see happening in the hearts and the lives of your brothers and sisters? If you don't, and, and I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but if you don't, if that wouldn't characterize you and your relationship to the church, here's what's going to happen. At some point in time, you are going to find yourself dissatisfied, grumpy, and grumbling. You know why? Because we're all a bunch of sinners. Because people are here. Because you're here. And if you're not at least occasionally looking around for reasons to express gratitude to God for the work of the gospel that he's doing by his word in the hearts and lives of the people around you, well, don't be surprised when you find yourself waking up one day and showing up one day grumpy and grumbling and dissatisfied. As one pastor put it, if we fail to notice the evidence of God's grace in our own churches, we'll gradually become nothing but grumblers rather than grateful saints of grace. Listen, Paul had all kinds of reasons why he could have complained about the church in Thessalonica. He could have complained about his experience in that town. But the eyes of his heart were focused on what matters, the majors. The word of God living and active at work in the lives of God's people. And he could see it as they continued to surrender to it with joy and suffer with hope. And listen, we have all kinds of reasons to complain around here, right? I'm probably at the top of your list. I'm at the top of my own list. And I promise you, my list is way longer than yours, right? We have all kinds of legitimate reasons why, why we might want to complain and grumble, right? But if we're not actively seeking to cultivate gratitude to God for the evidences of his grace, that we can see him at work through his word in the lives of your brothers and sisters here, we have nothing else to be but grumpy. And so that means that we have to have our eyes open all the time and and be asking, and I have to remind myself, asking, God, what are you doing? It's so easy for my own eyes to, to, to move and to shift and to look for something else and, and, to, and to come unfocused that I can get frustrated and grumpy and complaining. And I'm looking for some other place to go. Then I realize I have to come back on Sunday. What, what, are, what are you doing? Where are you at work? Friends, are your eyes open for opportunities to give gratitude to God for all the evidences of his grace as he works through his word in the hearts and lives of those around you? Let me tell you, if there's any occasion where you see even the smallest evidence of a life surrendering, being shaped by the word of God with joy, you see the smallest evidence of it at work. Where you see the smallest instance of, of someone, a brother or a sister in this room, engaging in the loss of reputation, engaging in the loss of anything, and even in the smallest way as a follower of Jesus, because to them in that moment, Jesus was more precious and pleasant to them than whatever was being held out for them. Even the smallest occasion, if you see it, 
Friends, that is the evidence of the living and active word of God at work in the lives of a brother or sister in this room. And for that, we are to be most profoundly grateful because he is at work. So what are your eyes looking for? What are you focused on? Friends, join us as we pray that God would enable us to cultivate this kind of gospel gratitude in our own lives. And that Redemption Hill would continue to be a place that by the power of God's grace at work in us and whatever effort we put forward in it would do our best to continue to try to major on the majors in all that we do. I'm gonna pray for us now and then together we're going to respond to God's word as we do every single week. We're gonna give you a moment to reflect, to consider what God may be calling you to do, how he may be calling you to respond to his word. And then for those who have tasted his word as precious and pleasant and repented of their sin and surrendered to Jesus with joy and faith, you're gonna be invited to come forward to proclaim your confidence and faith in Christ and his word and promise to you as you receive communion this morning. And then we're gonna sing. We're gonna celebrate the goodness and the kindness of God as we respond again before he sends us out as his people. So let me pray. And then we'll continue to respond. Father, it doesn't seem adequate enough, but thank you for your word, for revealing to us what we would have never been able to know or understand apart from your grace of revealing it, for for helping us daily to see you for who you are, to see your son and the magnitude of your mercy and grace to us, for meeting us daily and meeting us weekly and encountering our souls with a word of your character and a word of godliness and grace. Lord, we pray that as we continue to, to sing of your work, to sing of your grace, to pray about these gospel truths, that you would open up our eyes to see and enjoy the reality of your kindness and grace to us through your son more and more. Lord, we ask this in his good name for his glory and our continued joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.